Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the latest Shiny Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Spector. With me, as usual, is uh, Mr. Rob Hirschfeld. Good morning, Rob. Hello, Stephen. You sound a little low energy today. I, I'm What's back that? from my vacation, so I had uh, to get up early for my 7 a.m. calls, so I'm I'm perking up yet. I haven't eaten anything, but, uh, you know, you do the vacation thing and you get used to sleeping in, so... Uh, that Shame on me. That post-vacation lag, you don't get sufficient cricket time. I, I didn't. I understand. I understand. But, of course, I, I, just as a cricket update for all our listeners, uh, I did not play this weekend because I was traveling, but three people ended up in the hospital with surgery. And I continue to be amazed how dangerous cricket is for a game where it looks like everyone stands around. So uh, I'm, I'm getting worried because generally I end up in hospitals from sports activities. So... Um, there's only two more games left, so I can hopefully make it through. I'm sending, I'm sending you a package of bubble wrap right now. <laughs> so anyway, we have a new company with us today, which you know is the best. We love to find new companies. We're going to talk blockchain again, which is always great. So let me introduce our guest, uh, Doug Beardsley, who's from a company called uh, Cadena. Did I do that right, Doug? I think I did. Yes, yes. Cadena, we're, we're, it's a nod to the Spanish uh, word for chain and the Spanish pronunciation. Well, that is cool. It has an E, so the E is really sounding like an A, which is why I I had to make sure I did it right. But um, anyway, Doug, welcome to the podcast. And if you if you can do, give us a little background of yourself, a little maybe a quick intro to Cadena, and then uh, we'll take it from there. Sure, I'm director of engineering at Cadena. Cadena is building the next generation blockchain platform that we believe will solve the scalability problems that have been plaguing blockchains for ever since they've been around. I have a background in software engineering. I've been writing code since I was uh, in, in middle school. And uh, for the last nine or so years, I've been programming Haskell full-time professionally, which I, has been really fortunate. I'm, I'm lucky that I was able to get into the Haskell world uh, fairly early. What got you into Haskell? I was working in a defense contractor, and we wrote a large Java app that was really about operating on this large shared map. And I wanted to do a major refactoring to that data structure. And I wanted to do it in a way that I would be confident that the compiler would catch any problems if I had, I was, I was going to refactor to the a read copy update paradigm where you read the map and then do all of your operations and then make a new copy, make your updates there and then compare and swap them back in. And I wanted the compiler to guarantee that I couldn't make updates to the shared version inadvertently. And there just really wasn't a good way to do it. And I started looking around at some other programming languages. And it turns out that Haskell is a purely functional language. And it gives you that behavior basically out of the box. Ah, that makes a lot of sense. So, and we're, one of the things that, that's on my list for us to discuss and we'll get to is, is uh, <laughs> some, some of the ways that you're reusing Lisp or things that are Lispy um, in the mm -hmm. contract language. And so I... I but I don't want to jump right to that because I feel like it's we need to build a bridge uh, to get there. But it's it's amazing to me how much yeah in a lot of these applications a, a language that enforces certain behaviors uh, is actually an architecturally significant thing. All languages are not equal from that perspective. 
Right. Is, is the Katana components, um, is Haskell important from that perspective? Or are you building you know, a whole bunch of pieces in Haskell or is it just the choice that your team made? So we are building a smart contract language called Pact. Pact itself is not related to Haskell. Like you mentioned, it is a Lisp inspired language. But all of our big projects, Pact itself, and our blockchain chain web and as many other things as we can can do in Haskell, we use Haskell for. So if you want to work at Kadena, you need to be a Haskell developer for most of these roles because we believe that Haskell allows us to build these systems in a more robust and uh, safe way. Makes a lot of sense to me. I've heard similar arguments for people who are very invested in Erlang um, from that that example, and that's that ah yes, absolutely. Erlang and other. You, th you think language. somebody who was like had ex Erlang experience, the the ten of them on the planet, would would be able to translate that in for Haskell? Or that's a really interesting question. The functional programming community, I would say, there's there's a significant division between the strongly typed functional programming languages and the not strongly typed functional programming languages. In my experience, it I have seen that people who have come from a different strongly typed functional language tend to have an easier time making the jump to Haskell than people who come from a dynamically typed functional language. But that's just my my anecdotal experience. Interesting. Yeah, I've, my experience with functional programming is it's sort of its own mindset, and that's the that's the first hurdle. But um, I'm not I'm not experienced in Haskell, so yeah, Haskell in particular is a good bit different from most of the other functional languages, even the strongly typed ones, because it has purity and it, it's pure by default, which ends up influencing the way you write code pretty significantly. So I'm I'm going to pull us back from the Haskell cliff a little bit, sure. <laughs> absolutely. Because I think I think it's worth explaining. You know, it, I, we'll get back to it in that. You know, I think it's important to understand why why you made certain choices. But you mentioned the scalability problem with blockchain, uh, and that might be, you know, a good place for us to sort of anchor the conversation that that I'm interested in having around this. Okay. Um, why is there a scalability problem around blockchain? Well, if you use Bitcoin and you want to uh, send send money to someone, it takes about an hour to be confident that your money got sent. And that makes Bitcoin not really suitable for lots of transactions where you need to make that transfer happen more quickly. Say you're at a fast food restaurant or you're buying coffee. You can't wait around for an hour for the coffee shop to be confident that your money went through. So that's the, the transaction latency, and that's a big option. So I, I want to, since we don't have, you know, I, I'm not going to assume a lot of Bitcoin and blockchain knowledge on from listeners, that, that's got to make people be like scratch their head because that is totally unusable from a, a currency transaction perspective. How did it get so slow? Because if it was that slow at the beginning, you know, we wouldn't, we, we wouldn't have the, the blockchain craze that we had or are still having? Well, so I don't know that it's totally unusable because there are plenty of situations where that kind of latency is fine. Let's say you're an immigrant, you move to a, com a country to try to make a better life for yourself and you wanna send money to your family back home. 
that you don't need uh, a faster transaction time. The, the blockchain times are perfectly fine. You, you're, you're doing that fairly rarely and an hour's latency is not a problem, but it, it is a problem is, is for latency, wider adoption. Is the latency a computational problem, an architecture problem, or you know, related to the fact that we, we just distributed consensus, it takes time? Um, that's a good question. There's some aspects, I think, of, of distributed consensus. There's some aspects of network latency. It's, it's a tricky problem, but you basically have to wait until enough blocks have been accumulated that whatever the probability you need that the transaction has gone through and, won't, and can't be reversed, it's really a probabilistic thing. The longer you wait, the more confident you get. And okay. I believe the conventional wisdom is with Bitcoin, you wait six blocks. Bitcoin is designed to have an average block time of around 10 minutes. So that means that you're waiting about an hour. Well, you were the first person who I've, I've heard describe it in these terms. So I've never heard it, Rob. I, I've never heard it. I've never heard it described yeah. quite like this. It makes it makes it makes sense to me. But if you're waiting, so if you're writing data into a block, you're making a transaction, then the the blocks have to have a consensus. They have to be processed. Um, why six blocks? So I'm not exactly sure what all went into the six block recommendation. It's probably a fair amount of math, but basically you have to wait for a block to be mined and the Bitcoin block time is around 10 minutes. So it takes 10 minutes before you even get into the first block. And I believe Ethereum has improved this a good bit by having a faster block time. But if you have a faster block time, then you are making it easier for that for, for a, an unusually large amount of computing power to come in and be able to do enough uh, work to forge that block. So it's really a relationship between block times and the, the structure of your network and the computing power available. It's a complex, complex relationship. And I, I don't know exactly, I can't characterize it precisely, but except that it's as time goes by, you get more and more confidence that your, your transaction won't be able to be reversed. That makes sense. And as, as the data is spread and distributed, I mean, some of this is consensus um, from that perspective. If, right. If, it, so it's how, how, do you, how do you solve that problem? I mean, what's, what is your strategy for improving the, the performance without, you know, sort of undermining people's confidence that the things they've written to that chain are, you know, basically reversible? So we took a look at the problem and we said, if you have uh, Bitcoin, if you have one Bitcoin network and it processes X transactions per second, let's just use five because I think that's close, five transactions per second, and you want to pr um, process more than five, then you can take a classic computer science approach and try to parallelize it. What if we have two Bitcoin networks? And and if you want to decrease the, the latency, you can shorten up the block time. And there's some trade-offs to be had when you're shortening, shortening the block time, but there's also some things you gain there. So now if we have like 10 Bitcoin networks, it stands to reason that we could process 10 times as many transactions per second. 
And if we lower the block time, we can get those transact those blocks in sooner and potentially have a, a lower confirmation time. Now, there's there's a problem if you have ten bitcoins, which is that a there's ten different currencies and they don't transfer between each other very easily, and that's not a very good user experience. And then b if you have ten bitcoins miners operating on one of those we call them chains could redirect their hash power to a different chain and overwhelm it and and do a 51% attack on just that chain and that wouldn't be good so the, this kind of fungibility of mining resources across chains becomes a potential attack vector what we have done with chainweb is we have made the chains hash linked so if you consider the case of two chains for a moment, each chain at block 10, or each blo block 10 has a reference to block nine in each chain. In Chainweb, we would also make the two chains have a reference to the other chains, block nine. So that would mean that if you want to forge a block on either chain, you have to have 51% of both chains hash power because that block depends on the most recent block for both of the chains. Now, if you expand that out to N chains, what you end up wanting is a chain linking structure that has the minimum number of, of links because that that is extra space that you have to store, but you want it to spread out and reach all the chains as quickly as possible. And it turns out that that's a classic problem in graph theory called the degree diameter problem. And so you, you solve the degree diameter problem and you structure your chains in a, a graph that is a good solution to that problem. And then you, in order to attack any one chain, you have to have 51% of the computing power of all of the chains in the network. Does that okay, make sense? So this is this is super interesting. So what what you're what we're doing with a single chain is we're creating a distributed trust where multiple act multiple people can verify the the the, the authenticity of transactions on that chain and by creating multiple chains basically you're you're allowing instead of having one giant distributed consensus you're actually allowing essentially a pool of consensus operations. Yes, you could think of it. Wow. That. Okay, that's a really interesting way to solve the the performance problem. So that way, every chain doesn't become this monster like with Ethereum is becoming or Bitcoin is. You can create smaller chains and then have the other chains verify that that chain is has integrity. Sort of what you're saying. So you could you could leverage a big a bigger slower chain for integrity checks without compromising a small, fast-moving chain. Is that the idea? A little bit. We definitely want there to be the ability to, to kind of restrict certain or, or keep some of your operations on one chain. So one of the big issues with Ethereum was when CryptoKitties got really popular, it slowed down the network for everyone. With Chainweb, what you could do is you could have CryptoKitties run on only a subset of the chains, and then any kind of, of congestion would be limited to those chains, and the rest of the network could move, move their operations away from those chains, and 
alleviate some of the congestion that CryptoKitties is giving. Each chain is a relatively self-contained thing. If you're running a node, you don't have to run a node that replicates all chains. You can choose which chains you're going to replicate. You will have to maintain some of the block header information for the neighbor chains that you link to, but you won't have to maintain all of the block payloads for those chains. So it parallelizes fairly nicely. Uh, that is an interesting way to solve the this, you know, being very captive to one block perspective. Uh, and that still lets you distribute the data. You don't have to go to essentially a central authority um, that, that still like. So the other alternative I've seen is that people will centralize their rights into a service, more like a database, and then it becomes part of a chain. So you have the transaction guarantees, but you don't have the bottleneck of writing to distributed chains. Is that is that a balanced how do you how do you see that as a balanced approach? We think that there's really interesting possibilities there. So Cadena originally the company was built around private blockchains and more of an enterprise focus. After a while, one of the founders came up with this idea for Chainweb, and so we've started exploring that, but we still have a private blockchain implementation and it it interoperates with our whole ecosystem. We have this, this programming language Pact that runs on both Chainweb and our private blockchain. And one thing that we've starting, been thinking about lately is how we can leverage both the private and the public blockchains in a hybrid manner. And we think that there's some really interesting opportunities there if you need a little bit more centralization and you don't want to pay the cost of fully decentralized public blockchain, you could put information onto a private blockchain and then you could put maybe the hash of that information on the public blockchain. And it's too early to really, I think, say how this is going to play out, but we think it's a really interesting possibility. No, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. We had a, a guest on almost a year ago now, I think, Stephen, uh, Val Da Vinci with pencil data that had um, something uh, something similar where they were he was hashing pencil data was hashing data for normal transaction logs to public blockchains to ver be able to verify so what you're saying resonates with strategies that that I've seen emerge where people are using public blockchains um, to store a little bit of verifying data and then not let, but then not trying to use that, the public blockchain for, you know, for everything. Cause even, even so you don't, you might have sensitive data. You don't want to trust into even encrypted. You don't want to trust into a public blockchain. Exactly. We've been working with some healthcare companies and they have exactly this problem. HIPAA compliance. You can't be putting patient data on a public blockchain, but you could potentially put it on a private blockchain possibly encrypted, if that makes sense, and then put evidence that that data has, has been there and existed at a certain point in time on a public blockchain in the form of a hash. And I think this is a really interesting uh, way of interoperating with these two private and public blockchain ideas that, that has a lot of promise, and it'll be interesting to see where it goes. So, so that makes a lot of sense. I don't want to short us on time from a contract perspective because I think one of the other things that's super interesting here is that you know when 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 somebody says contract to me, I either think API or I think like lawyers, right? Um, and and when and when you say contract, you're actually 
sort of blending, right? You have a programming language that is your, you know, what you've, what you've done is you've, you've got a programming language as part of the contract. Can you, Doug, can you explain how the, the programming language is the contract and, and how that, that evolves? Sure. I think that the, the term smart contract is not a very good term to describe these things. I think it, the, these things are not smart and they're not contracts either. What they really are is computer programs in a blockchain. And a blockchain is a tamper-proof database. So these are computer programs that you can put out into the world and are stored in a tamper-proof way so everyone knows that they're looking at the exact same version of the code and interacting with it. Okay. So that makes sense why Lisp is a great choice because Lisp is effectively a completely self-contained programming language from that perspective. Exactly. What Ethereum did was pioneer the idea of putting a program on a blockchain. Bitcoin, what what did they store in the blockchain? They stored a ledger. And it turns out that a ledger in a a tamper-proof database equals a currency. Ethereum came along with with this great idea of putting computer programs there. But what they chose was to put EVM bytecode on the blockchain. In Cadena's view, that misses out on some of the benefits of a blockchain, the, the tamper-proofness and the public recordness of the data that's in there. And so we believe that it makes more sense to put human-readable code in a blockchain. And that's why we chose Pact and made it be inspired by Lisp, because Lisp is very easy to parse, very easy to interpret, and you're putting the human-readable form on the blockchain, so you never have to be be wondering, what was the code that originally generated this contract? What was the original developer looking at? The, The code that's out there is the code that the original developer was looking at. That makes sense. I, I think that, you know, and, and we don't have time because I, I want to talk about uh, DevOps with you a little bit, but just to tease people's appetite for this and from a thought perspective, right? If you can make code, you know, sort of trustworthy from that perspective, it has huge implications from a distributed trust perspective because then you can, you can take code and put it into a lot of places. Um, and you can, you know, it, that becomes a very interesting way to, to manage what we'd like to talk about, which are distributed edge environments. Does that make sense to you? Yes, absolutely. We have spent a lot of time specifically designing Pact to make it easy and, and not error prone to build these smart contracts. And we've, we've put in crypto primitives. So Programmers shouldn't need to be worrying about crypto. It's it has multi-sig built in from the ground up. So you just say what you want and you say it in a way that's very concise and readable and other people can understand. And it's much easier to verify and be be confident that your program does what you expect it to do. And then on top of that, we designed the language to be amenable to formal verification, which we have have running and is very powerful. You can you can try it out by going to pact.cadena.io and you can see your contracts formal verification running in the browser. It's really a really cool well, that's, that's powerful because when you're talking about you know the type of code that you're distributing into a blockchain, 
you do need to be able to make sure that it's it's verified. And, and Lisp is traditionally not been that easy to verify because it's interpreted. Right. And so we, we took the Lisp syntax, but then we also designed the language specifically to be amenable to formal verification. And formal verification doesn't have to be run by every node in the blockchain. You can, you can formally verify your contract on your own time, on your own machine, and then anyone else that that comes along can run the formal verification as well. And we can even do formal verification on interfaces. So if someone puts an interface, for example, say an ERC20 type token, you can put formally verified properties in the interface and then PACT will check that anyone implementing that interface also uh, provides the same properties. Wow, that's really powerful. It's it's interesting to me when you know when we when I think of blockchain typically, I don't think of it as carrying programming logic. Um, and this has been you know sort of a awakening for me from that perspective. And then I love how deeply you've gone in thinking through the implications of distributing code that way. It gets I, I'm a little scared because I, I I think of my Git history and how many commits there are and and how many blockchain writes that would end up being with with incremental right. versions. Um, and I'm, I, I suspect that, that, that that's going to ultimately make some blockchains, um, longer, but you do have to, if the verification should help. Yeah, we think so as well. There's, there's a lot in common between Git and version control and blockchains. So, so Doug, I don't know if this is a silly question. Who pays for all this? Uh, pays for at what level? Well, I mean, if you have these blockchains out there, who who pays for that to store them? And is it just it's stored on people's machines? Is so that how anyone anyone running a node is executing the contracts in the blockchain and verifying that the output, the the result of the contract execution is bit for bit equivalent to everyone else's version. So people running nodes pay for this and miners are where the, the I think the original incentives come in. A miner runs a node and then runs mining equipment to calculate the proof of work, solve the proof of work problem, and then miners get coins whenever they mine a new block. And so there's an incentive for miners to keep the network running and keep verifying that code. If you're not a miner and you're running a node, then you're probably doing it because you would like to look at the data in the blockchain in some way, shape, or form. And then you're getting value out of the data that's there. And so while you might be, not be compensated directly in terms of a cryptocurrency, you're getting value from the data and, and what you're doing with the data. So, so that, that actually ties up to the DevOps. It's almost a, Stephen gave me a layup to get, get us into the DevOps topic because you, you just talked about running nodes and running infrastructure. How much infrastructure is behind a typical blockchain implementation? So the infrastructure that we have right now is our testnet. And our testnet is a bunch of computers around the world that are talking to each other as, a, as just like blockchain nodes will once we launch mainnet. We're 
building a distributed system and we need to understand how that distributed system will behave when there is significant network latency. So we have machines in a number of regions all around the world, and we are running them in our testing environment and experimenting with the network's performance and seeing how the system works in a very realistic environment. So we have to have tools for automating the deployment of all of these machines so that we can see the emergent behavior of the network that we're creating. That makes a lot of sense. And so from that perspective, you're running infrastructure just like anybody else was. You and I talked a little bit before the show about your choice to use NICs, um, something something that I've, I've seen used um, usually for people who have a, a specific opinions about how they want to run their infrastructure. How did you get to using Nix? And first, tell people what Nix is, and then uh, how did you get there? Nix is a purely functional package manager, which makes each package a pure function of all its dependencies with, with no side effects. So you don't rely on some bits being on the hard drive in a particular location just magically. They are all inputs to the function, as it were. There is also an operating system, a Linux distribution, built on top of the Nix package manager called Nix OS. And this is where it gets really interesting and useful for us in terms of the ops story. When we were getting ready to deploy our, our testnet originally, we actually investigated Kubernetes as our tool for deploying these things. We ended up con concluding that Kubernetes was too complicated for our needs because Kubernetes has a lot of assumptions. It, it assumes that you need a load balancer, for instance. And in our case, the thing that we're building, a blockchain, it is a load balancer itself. So we don't really need a load balancer sitting in front of our blockchain application like most uh, distributed systems that use Kubernetes are assuming. So that ended up being being a fair amount of complexity that we didn't need. And Nix, and specifically Nix OS, allows us to very easily deploy new versions of our system. We build our software with Nix, and it gets stored at an immutable location in an immutable package store, a content-addressed directory, basically, with a hash of the of the whole package and then the name of the whole package that is the directory name and this makes it really easy for us to play with our testnet because we can install a new version and nothing about the currently running version gets overwritten there is no mutable state the new version gets added to that compute uploaded to that computer in a brand new location on disk and then we just flip some sim links to point to the new version and restart the process and now we're running the new version if that version is has some major problems and we need to revert it's trivial to flip the sim links back to point to the old version and we're running the old version again. It's really a, an incredible experience with ops because you you don't have this fear of overriding the wrong bit of mutable state and getting into a getting your your machine into a state that doesn't work because 
it's purely functional and and all the stuff that you're putting deploying to these machines is immutable makes a lot of sense and so so the way i like the way i I try to explain it to people is it's sort of if linux met docker component uh, a docker run file uh you would you would have this this full stack all the way end to end um and it's it is it can be a very very powerful thing you have to there is some investment up front to build your your operating system kernels from that perspective it's almost it's not exactly a unikernel i wouldn't describe it that way but it has some of that same effect where it's a single function uh install of your operating system right it gives you a very declarative way of specifying your machine configuration most most every aspect about the machine can be specified in a single file where you're you're describing what services you want to be running what users you want to exist on the machine what ssh keys you want to have access and and so on and so forth anything you can think of you can specify it in this one configuration file and then you can easily deploy this configuration file to all kinds of machines and very quickly be running uh, a machine that is exactly the state that you expect it to be in. Right. No, that makes a lot. That makes a ton of sense. It, uh, that's the power of immutability um, from people's perspective. And did, do you put that in a CI/CD pipeline, or how do you how do you build your uh, images? Yes, we that is in our CI pipeline, and one of the big reasons it's in our CI pipeline is because of the caching we get from it. Because these things are purely functional, we know we have very high build reproducibility. We know bit for bit everything going into the build, and that means that your caching is going to be much better. So we have our CI run populate a Nix binary cache with the built binaries, and then when we deploy to the our testnet machines, we have have all of those machines pull from the binary cache and we can even put our binary cache in s3 and have it um replicated around the world with amazon's s3 cdn functionality and then we get much faster upload and deployments of our new builds as they happen and it also gives us a potential significant win for our team as well because if you've if someone publish a new branch, CI built it, you pull that branch, you want to see how it works, you can get the whole build cached and you can be off to the races running that code very quickly. It makes a lot of sense. Are you able to do a, like a checksum or some verification? So there's a security component also? Yes, that is that is built into Nix as a very core component. Everything that Nix works with has a hash. And Nix verifies that the hashes are are what they expect, and you you really have to do this if you want to have these guarantees because there's no guarantee that if you pull from GitHub slash foo slash whatever that you're going to get the same version every time. People can force push to <laughs> GitHub, and <laughs> totally so, right. so even, the, even if you're doing a, a yum install or an app get install, the version you're, you're going to inherit a dependency tree based. Based on what's in that repo package, right. package manager. To, to tie the, the link back to Pact and our smart contract language, we've done similar things with Pact, where Pact, if you depend on another contract that's already on the blockchain, 
pact links it in when it's interpreted. And so you don't have any of the left pad problems with pact that we saw with JavaScript years ago when someone deleted their repo off of GitHub and left pad was depended on by huge numbers of open source projects and they all suddenly stopped building. That was a, yep. That, that was an eye opener for a lot of people. This, and this one's interesting to me, you know, when we, when we think about edge deployments and pieces like that, we're talking about distributing, you know, what we hope to be trusted operating systems and builds um, very, very broadly. And what you just described as supporting your team, I could have substituted the word edge infrastructure and, you know, everything you said would still be valid and true. And so, um, what I, what I like in a conversation like this is that the problems that you're solving, the distributed trust issues, you know, the performance guarantees, security are all top of mind um, for, you know, what, what I see as, as an increasing amount of distributed computing. You know, we like to talk about it from edge, but you're talking about it equally with blockchain. So it, it's a nice, um, to me, this is, this is, this is the, the great, these are great conversations for us. I love having them. Yeah, one one thing that I have been basically headed for with my career over the last 5, 10, 15 years is I believe that purely functional programming, i.e. Uh, controlled mutable state and, and not having side effects, or at the very least, understanding precisely what, what side effects you have, I think that these ideas are the future of computing. I think they're going to allow us to build software in a much more robust fashion. Haskell has these ideas. Nix has these ideas. That's why you tend to see a fair amount of Nix people in the Haskell community, because they're people who are interested in these ideas. And I believe that the ideas are universally applicable. If you ever installed an upgrade to your operating system and you ended up in a non-bootable state or, or things were broken and you couldn't easily revert, you could be helped by immutability and purely functional representations of, of your problem. So Doug, this is uh, Stephen again coming in. Uh, great podcast today, really good stuff, great blockchain. And I'm still, the whole idea that it takes 10 minutes or whatever just to start the actual right to the blockchain to get back to is really something brand new. I, I know um, Rob said the same thing. So I love learning new things. Doug, if people want to get in touch with you, your company, uh, how should they reach out? Uh, my email address is Doug at Kadena.io. And uh, you can reach me there. Our company is Kadena. Kadena.io is our website. Our smart contract language is PACT. If you want to experiment with PACT today, you can go to pact.cadena.io and immediately be writing PACT code in your browser and play, playing with our formal verification system as well. Those are some of our resources. Uh, and, if you can get back in touch with us, Doug, when your stuff launches, I'm happy to uh, promote it and connect this podcast and stuff so people want to learn more. Um, Really appreciate you joining us today. And uh, Rob, another a great podcast. Good way to start my uh, back from vacation. Good stuff. I definitely feel smarter. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And it was a pleasure discussing these ideas.